Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners who come from around the world and have been listening to these podcasts with uh, all of my authors and their wisdom um, throughout the last 10 years that I've been doing these and over 600 podcasts. And today joining me is Heather McGowan. And Heather is got an interesting compilation book out. Um, she edited this book along with Stephen Spendelli Jr., uh, the president of Philadelphia University. She's an academic entrepreneur. And the book is called Disrupt Together, How Teams Consistently Innovate. Good day to you, Heather. How are you? Thanks. How are you? Good, good. I appreciate you being on the show taking a little bit of time to talking about disruption in teams and how people innovate in businesses and entrepreneurship and all the good things I'm going to be asking you questions about. For my listeners, I don't know if I'd really call this a textbook per se, but it's kind of more of a texty book. Would you say that, uh, Heather? I think of it more of as a guidebook. It's sort of something where you can flip to the chapter that's of greatest relevance to you because it's a it's a compilation of a number of experts for a number of different fields that we brought together uh, to build this new college at Philadelphia University. And we took their learning that, that we got from building the college and thought about how would this apply to other entities and other organizations. So how could we create sort of a manual? And you did indeed do that, and it really is very thorough and um, a lot of great uh, papers by these authors. I don't know how many are actually included in the book, uh, Heather. I think it's, uh, I don't know, 15 or so? Yeah. 16? Yep. 16, yeah. So awesome opportunity for people to get different perspectives as well. Well, Heather, I'm going to let my listening audience know a little bit about you. Heather McGowan works at the intersection of the future of work and the future of learning an emerging field that integrates design, strategy, management, consulting, and education. Uh, Heather uses single-frame visuals to help people quickly understand the shifting mental maps and contextual references. She assists executives in rethinking their business models, teams, and organizational structures. In higher education, she advises presidents to develop learning agility to prepare graduates for jobs that do not yet exist. Heather was the architect of the Kunbar College of Design, Engineering, and Commerce at Philadelphia University, and the first undergraduate college explicitly focused on innovation. She's the co-author and co-editor of this book that we're going to be talking about today called Disrupt Together, How Teams Consistently Innovate. Her corporate clients range from small startups to publicly traded Fortune 500 companies, ranging from Autodesk to BD Medical. Um, she speaks internationally, and you can actually find Heather at www.heathermcowan, and that's mcgowan.net. That's .net. We'll put a link in our blog for that, Heather, as well as some other links uh, to things that you've got out on the web. Well, Heather, you said the inspiration for the book was something the authors referred to as creative destruction. And that the process of incremental improvement historically builds economic value for organizations. What has to occur within the culture of organizations to foster an environment that breeds innovative solution and outperforms the norm? 
Um, I think it needs to begin with uh, a leadership that's got the, the ability to craft a vision that enough people can see themselves in. If you don't have enough people to be your champions and lead the charge, it's going to be something that quickly fails. So you need to identify a vision that five, six, seven, eight, nine, probably I've figured between 10 and 15% of your workforce say, I can see that, I can see myself in that, and I want to be a part of that. And then mm-hmm. you may have uh, another section that may be 50 to 60% of your organization that says, I don't see it yet, I don't understand what it has to do with me, but so I'm going to kind of wait and watch. And that critical mass, you can't freak them out. You've got to sort of slowly bring them along, try different ways of explaining things to them so that they start to see themselves in it. And then you may have another 10 15% who say, absolutely, that's the wrong way we're going. I don't want to be a part of it. And you have to figure out whether those individuals need to leave your organization or if there are other roles within your organization. Because if you look at most organizations today, most organizations are executing on an idea that somebody had at one time. It was a need somebody saw. And Mm -hmm. as change continues to accelerate, those needs are going to become uh, closer together. So you're going to need to form new products, services, business models, et cetera, for those new needs. So where the bulk of your organization used to be in, in executing on a prior need, you're now going to have to split between those sort of people who clear the brush and make sure the natives are friendly. You know, they're looking for the new needs and new opportunities, and then the team that's going to execute. And if you have a rigid, you know, more than 10, 15% of your team that's adequate, that is adamant that the old way is the way they're going to keep doing it, it may become problematic. Mm. So the culture needs to be embracing that is what you're saying, and that you've got different segments, it sounds like, of, of team yeah, people 15% that are really progressive. Yeah. You're always going to have different people in different phases. Yeah, you're always going to have different people in different phases, but you've got to sort of figure out how do you empower that 10, 15, if you've got 20 or 25%, you're in good shape of your organization that understands the vision you're trying to craft and wants to get behind it and help you build it out. And then the the individuals that are resistant to it, as long as you can you can focus them on other things or minimize their ability to be destructive to the to the new entity um, or the new structure, organization, whatever it may be. And then that bulk in the middle, you have to figure out, it's really important to figure out, give them the time and space to make sense of it for themselves. Great, great advice for my listeners. So for all those people that are out there listening that are in upper management or middle management to this podcast, um, you know, again, Heather, a great website to go to to understand more. And obviously this book, Disrupt Together. Now you speak about architecting the vision of an organization and that the strategic planning model, which is designed to reach these outcomes. You actually even have a a chart in there or a graph. You state that a well-defined strategic planning process adds discipline to innovative behavior. What are the elements of a well-defined strategic plan in your estimation for a company that's going through this disruption and needs to embrace um, the whole new, what I want to call it, uh, a cycle of doing business? Um, I think that you've got to, you know, of course, make the SMART measurable goals so there's specific measurable, actionable, that, that, that whole acronym around how you define your goals. You also have mm-hmm. to... Um, Craft a, a vision that, that people can see themselves in so they can see, okay, this is how we used to do business and a certain percentage of our business is going to continue that way. And this is how we have to shift to doing business now, whether it be 
uh, a new product, a new delivery method, a new service, a new market. Um, you know, we're an intercollected global society, so it may be that your market's no longer in the U.S., so you have a whole confluence of other factors. You look at a lot of big companies now. They've been looking at growing um, internationally in, with entirely new parameters that require new products, new services, new channels, etc. You have to give people the ability to see the old way and where they fit in it and the new way and how they fit in it, and you have to make specific and measurable goals in terms of how you're going to shift, either run those two in parallel or how are you going to shift to the new model. There's a good um, chapter in the book. I want to tell one of, the, one of the people in the book who I think does a really particularly good job of explaining how to think about this, and it is... Uh, yeah, I'm just going to look up the name of it, the chapter. Disrupt, I think it was called Disrupting Yourself, how to decide when when you introduce a business model that may potentially destroy your fire business model. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we can, you know, for all of my listeners out there, there's um, approximately 15 contributors to this book. Yeah, and so you obviously 15. have a... 15, you have an opportunity to kind of go through and pick and choose. This isn't something that has to be done in a linear basis, which brings me kind of the next question. In your chapter in the book, this is actually Heather's chapter on framing the vision for engagement, you articulate the innovation process phases. Um, For the listeners, what are the phases and why is innovation, in your estimation, this nonlinear and iterative and divergent kind of process. Um, you know, I speak with a lot of engineers that are designing software and, um, you know, in process of interviewing for my book, um, I learned a lot about how innovation really emerges. Explain to us with all of your background, um, why you believe that is and, and what's this emergent process. Sure, I can I can explain the process, but also in the process in the context of in which I discussed it in the in the book. Um, a lot of people think that innovation is creating just this new thing nobody thought of before, and that is really creating a solution that didn't exist before. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of inform- innovation is not just that problem-solving realm, but also finding the right problem to solve and framing it properly. I mean, Albert Einstein famously said if he had an hour to solve a problem, he'd spend 55 minutes framing the question. I really do believe right. that. Um, and in the case of this book where, we, where my example was building this new college at Philadelphia University, the first day I went there, the president handed me a napkin with three circles on it that one said design, one said engineering, one said business, and they were sort of all overlapped. And he said, can you build this? And I thought, well, I'll try. <laughs> and then um, I discovered fairly quickly that I needed to understand what that, that concept meant. To him, it meant three circles on a piece of paper, because if you magically brought these disciplines together, innovation would just take place. And then when I talked to a number of different faculty members, and then this visual is in the book, I found that some saw them as three circles in sequence that were touching each other, as in we can design it, we can build it, and we can sell it. That would be design, engineering, and business. And then other ones thought about it in terms of how many courses do they take or how many credits and when do they take those credits. So when design and business come together, that will be one class. And when engineering and, and uh, business come together, that would be another class, and they were really focused on the credit counting. And I quickly realized we didn't have any common language. We didn't have the ability to find and frame problems, to understand how value is created, how systems work, how the, the portable thinking we could bring from the different disciplines was important to figure out. 
So this is a way of explaining by example that the process of innovation is understanding that you're all trying to solve the right question framed in the right way. And I think it's iterative because a lot of times you will, it's, that's such an ambiguous thing. You'll ask a bunch of questions. Everybody will have a different mental model in terms of what that means. And then you'll start plowing towards solving that problem and then realize you're all solving four or five different problems. And so you go back to ask the questions again. You ask a series of questions to make sure that you are all kind of headed towards the right question to solve. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does make sense. I mean, what you're thing. basically saying is that, you know, we, a lot of this innovation, I think the outside world that might be listening to this thinks it's something new, but the reality is it's an iterative process. It's happening with things that are finally connecting. I, I talked to engineers engineers and some they say you know look it's the subconscious of the mind it's gathered all this data over years and years and years and it's this clicking together of all of these pieces that have been there that are ultimately help us to create something better and new does that make sense yes, absolutely i mean there's the yeah. example of the, the blind man and the elephant you know you have eight blind men touching different parts of an elephant each one of them will describe something entirely different. One's touching the tail and says, it's a rope. And one's touching the ear and says, well, it's a flap like a ring, uh, a wing. And one other's touching the foot. So it's all depending on our perspectives. And we have to get a common perspective in order to start asking the right questions and then moving towards posing, framing, and then potential solutions. Mm-hmm. You know, in the book, you, you stated, or I don't know if this was in your chapter, but it was stated that, most companies were formed around their capacity to satisfy need better than anyone else. You propose that the spark that forms a company is often disruptive innovation. What is disruptive innovation and how do teams and organizations engage in successful long-term projects? Because what I find sometimes, and we're going to get to that, is the upset. There's a question about that that happens inside these teams, the dismantling of teams, the challenges that are faced and actually uh, continuing to sustain um, an innovative process inside of a company. Yeah, I mean, if you, I think it comes down to how you define what you do. So you, you look at a, a company, you look at um, uh, Blockbuster and, and Amazon is always, a, I mean, I'm sorry, Blockbuster and Netflix is always a good one. Netflix never define themselves by the distribution of a physical thing whereas Blockbuster very much mm-hmm. defined themselves by the distribution of a physical thing and saw their stores as assets and their customers who came in the stores. and That's what they were measuring, that's where they were counting, that's how they were defining themselves. And Netflix could easily pivot from sending DVDs into the mail to streaming devices to now content creation. So they, they were rather fluid in the way they defined how they delivered value as opposed to it being fixed to that first way they created value, the way Blockbuster did. Now Blockbuster's out of business and Netflix is booming. You know, same thing with Kodak versus, you know, Instagram. Kodak was in the picture business. They were in the business of developing great prints as opposed to capturing them. Mm-hmm. They're no longer here. You know, they, you have to have a, increasingly now a real agility around how you define the value that you deliver to your customer. Great great point that you make. Now, Ellen Darista wrote about the innovation capacity or capability of companies. She stated that companies that don't innovate are going to surely die. She also speaks about the dimensions of innovation 
uh, evolution and revolution. Can you comment on what Ellen wrote in there about these two types of dimensions? She actually even has a chart that kind of graphs between evolutionary and revolutionary, and obviously um, there is a difference here. Yeah, um, I can particularly uh, speak to that one because uh, Ellen and I developed that chart together (laughs) because we've had many conversations that we realize when we're talking about innovation that a lot of people are not on the same page as us. Sometimes it's, you know, um, I think we use the toaster example in there that, you know, you can, on the incremental end, you can make, uh, you can sell more toasters by making them faster or cheaper, but people buy more of them. You can make a better mm-hmm. toaster. Um, you can look mm-hmm. at the attributes of toaster bread, and then you can say, well, how, what are all the ways I could achieve the attributes of toaster bread? Which may, you know, you cross that sort of dotted line between the physical product and the product attributes you want that, that product to do for you. And you, in that case, right. you're leaving the toaster entirely behind. And we found that that simple example of using the toaster helped people understand where they were. They'd be like, oh, no, we're here. This is the problem. This is the type of innovation we have if you frame it within those sort of simple four buckets. And uh, we found that particularly helpful. Interesting. Yeah, I found that many of these chapters that were written by your colleagues um, to to have really, really great data and 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 I want to emphasize this to the listeners you can you can capture this in short read right because none of these chapters are really really long so I like the way that you guys designed the book now Dr. Sarah Beckman wrote about the learning styles and innovation and team design she has a model of abstract conceptualization and how we learn can you comment on the importance of our learning process when we're innovating in teams? Yeah, and this is, this is uh, Sarah's life's work. So if you like this line of thinking, I highly suggest you, you look into her. I, I, I actually read one article she wrote about this stuff, I think in 2009 or 10, and I said, oh, my God, does she understand this? And I tracked her down and uh, made her meet with me and got to know her and then eventually got her to write a chapter in the book after she helped me out there. So if you're listening out there and you, and you, and you tend to read people and you're like, wow, I, I need to learn more from these people, you can often find them and they're, and they're often open to collaboration. So that was just a delightful uh, anecdote about Sarah. But Sarah has, has been a person who has multiple PhDs in uh, engineering and systems thinking who intuitively understands uh, design. So she's able to translate to people who, who I think often don't otherwise get it. And her, her, a lot of her kind of life thesis is if you look at an innovation process from the sort of fuzzy front end when you're trying to understand what to pay attention to and what to observe to moving into how do you decide what's important of what you've observed and try to frame it a little bit, and then how do you take what's important of what you figured out and say what are the solutions to those needs I've uncovered to the final phase of which of those solutions do I select and implement. And that sort of four-phase process, she found maps to four or five different types of learning. So you'll find that designers are often, uh, they are more divergent in their thinking. They um, tend to come up with many more ideas, in some cases know how to frame those ideas, whereas uh, business people and engineers tend to narrow the scope. They tend to be more convergent thinkers who know how to select out of the ideas and present it in front of them and how to implement and optimize those. And I think people fall into those buckets in, in companies. We, we're not all one thing, and we can all move outside of our comfort zone, but we 
tend to, she's done some research in terms of people tend to select majors that meet with a thinking style they already have. So it's not like a business uh-huh. major makes you convergent. It's that you picked business or engineering because you like certainty. And you picked design yeah. because you like exploration. So it's an interesting parallel mm-hmm. she's found between the, the, um, the design or the innovation process and different thinking styles. And that also that helps you understand where people should play on the team as you move through the process. And uh, my, my thinking style is actually balanced, so I move across all of them. And uh, that puts me in a good position to be on a team and help people pull out their, their uh, particular skills depending on which phase of the process we're in. Yeah, you're, I can tell you're much like me in that respect in that I have to really kind of modulate between things. Um, and so I've developed my brain in the synapses and firing in a different way so that it, I can kind of move, read people, uh, read them psychologically, which brings us to our next uh, question here. Sarah Sanger Nori wrote about how to navigate expectations and upsets in a team. Um, this obviously occurs um, the ego comes up. Uh, you've got a bunch of engineers. You say, well, they're egoless. Well, that isn't true because I've talked to plenty of them lately, and there's got to be somebody to drive the team regardless. Otherwise, nothing gets got done. Can you comment on the best ways, in your opinion, to accomplish uh, harmony and uh, alleviate the disrupt and upset? Um, I think you've got to let the... Um you've got to let the disruption happen to, to some extent. You've got to acknowledge that it's happening, um, acknowledge the emotions that are involved in the, in the change, and, and a lot of change management peers um, ag- agree with that to some extent. You've got to let people grieve in between states, whether it's freeze, unfreeze, and freeze again, or uh, preparing for a change, the morning process, and then the, sort of the new day. And I think Sarah has some great tools to help people acknowledge that, yeah, we're in a state change. State changes are hard. And um, you, you're going to be feeling a certain loss. You might feel some anger. You might feel some grief. You know, there, there may be stages of your adjustment to, to, to the new state. Um, but acknowledging, mm-hmm. letting people acknowledge that without letting, allowing it to disrupt the plan. So you're saying allow it to happen because that upset needs to occur to kind of work through it versus try and um, mask it, right? So just allow it to occur and, and, and you will come out with the outcomes that you're looking for. And it's interesting, as I read through this book, all the Sarahs you have in the book, you have S-A-R-A and you have S-A-R-A-H, and you've got another Sarah coming up here with a question I have, which is Sarah Rottenberg. And she writes that enabling an organization to move in a new direction and in identifying new strat- strategic opportunities requires a vision for the future that could look like, what it could look like and that new business opportunities emerge from shifts in the cultural norms. What are some of the shifts you believe are happening that have opportunities for innovative organizations? Um, you could look at um, our preferences for communication, I think is interesting. Uh, how many people still leave or pick up voicemail? The, I, well, if you're asking me the question, I'm, so I'm a boomer. I'm a little older than you. Um, I still leave voicemail, but they don't always pick it up. You're right. And I do text way more um, than I voicemail. But I will tell you my preference, because I love to hear the tonality, and I actually like to hear people speak. That's why I interview people. I get a lot more out of it. I think it's your style. 
of actually um, learning and evolving. So I would say, yes, you're right. Most people don't pick up their voicemail. Um, do I like it? Mm, not really. <laughs> yeah, do I have it. to evolve? Yes. Yes, I've had to evolve over that. If you're, if you're running a company right now and you're implementing customer service, would you put more into texting and chatbots or would you put more into live operators? That's a, that's a cultural shift that's taking place. We do have four generations in the workforce right now, so that's a challenge because they're four very different ways of working. But one mm-hmm, concrete mm-hmm. change in cultural norms is the mobile devices that we have with us every day where we can transfer money, call a cab, book a flight, um, Right. connect with customer service, open our garage door, you know, a whole host of things. And that cultural norm has shifted how we do different forms of communication and, and business. Mm-hmm. Now, my question for you, Heather, would be, um, how do you determine if that evolution has actually been, how do you want to say this, for the better? Um, you know, there's lots of research going on about, you know, our communication styles, obviously, and I interview lots of people. Just in your humble opinion, um, do you believe we're, we're more connected or more disconnected? Um, I think we're more connected in some ways. I think we have more of an ability to have second-degree loose connections. So if you go on Facebook, you might have seen a picture of someone you went to high school son in a Christmas pageant or, or, you know, somebody's daughter getting married. And that information is something that you may get annually in a Christmas letter, if at all. So we feel sort of a nostalgic connection and part of a community. I think we are in our more intimate relationships. And I mean, like your friends and family, the people you are physically in the presence of. I see mm-hmm. more and more people staring at their phones and, and connecting less in that way. Um, but mm-hmm. then on the other hand, I say, and I think in... For me personally, in terms of uh, creating a learning community, I've created a massive learning community through social media where, you know, you found me. We've never met. We're having this conversation. That wouldn't have been possible before. Or unlikely. This is like the 10th one of these I've done in the last, you know, four months because it's just, it's possible to connect. And maybe we'll talk again. Maybe we'll stay connected. Maybe we'll share articles. Maybe we'll develop some sort of, I consider it a learning relationship because I'm learning something from you and I'm sharing things. That type of uh, connection and community, I, th- I think, is a, is a new method of learning that's really important. Um, so it's, it's a mix. You have these sort of weird faux relationships through Facebook through people you may never see, but you feel connected right. to. Um, you're staring at your screen instead of your spouse or partner or daughter or son or cousin or mother when you're with them. That's weird. I think we, need, we have some work to do there. And then you have professionally have the ability to have a much broader and more interesting uh, professional network than you've ever been able to have before. Yeah, you know, I I, I go to the the whole concept of um, you know this deep work with Cal Newport. I've interviewed him many many times, and you know I, I look at it and I go, you know, that's a very popular work, but the rules for focus, success in a distracted world. And I, I almost look that much of this technology has been wonderful about getting people connected, but it's also made us so distracted as a society. And um, and and I'm not negative on it. I'm just saying, well, maybe there's a better way. Now, yeah, I think there's David, some work to do too. Actually, um, 
in 2012, our sustained attention span was 12 seconds. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm sorry, in 2008. And then in 2012, it became 8 seconds. That's the mm-hmm. impact, I think, of mobile devices. And just by frame of reference, a goldfish has a 9-second attention span. So our attention span has dropped to less than that of a goldfish. Yeah, it's just mind-boggling. And then that, you know, and we and I won't get into that, but, you know, our critical thinking skills as individuals in the marketplace have been so um, uh, diminished. Um, I don't see it because we're so dependent on the devices. So, and it's not just the devices, but it's everything. But I think the critical thinking spells, I, I, I did an interview, which you would probably love this. It's the geography of genus with Eric Weiner. And, you know, can you really say that many of these people from Silicon Valley are geniuses? And there is a question about that when you really look back in history and you study history about really what could be considered truly geniuses. But your buddy, David Charon, I think it is, or is it, how do you, am I saying it right? C-H-A-R-R-O-N, wrote that disruption together brings together two different disciplines. He said, innovation and entrepreneurship, and that's really at the nexus of who you're all about. That's what, she, that's what Heather does well. To recognize that disruption is based on both the new idea and the capability of those ideas to scale repeatedly to markets. How do you, Heather, help entrepreneurs using the innovative process to develop a business model that can achieve economies of scale and scope? I think it's the first question I always ask is, what problem are you solving and to whom are you, for whom are you solving it? And if people can't answer those two questions, then they don't have anything worth talking about. Because when people mm-hmm. just start talking about their solution, um, it's the difference between uh, verbs and nouns. If they can talk about the verbs, the needs, as opposed to the nouns, the solutions, then they really understand the space they're solving and for whom they're solving it. So I always push back to, to that and understanding, okay, what are the alternatives? Does someone really need this? Uh, what else are they doing right now? How would this change other things they're doing? So very much looking at it from a need and a behavioral standpoint is, is, is how I begin. My background is in um, industrial design, which where I studied it, which was run on school of design, was very focused on questioning the question, and it was really about the process, not the product. And I think that has served me well through the, the whole arc of my career. I later on, added an, an MBA in entrepreneurship, which then focused on if you can figure out what that need is and you can really narrow in on understanding that you have the right need to solve, how do you build that need into a value that's sustainable? So what problem are you solving and who are you solving it for is the first question you should ask. Yep. be asking. Don't just start espousing that you've got a great idea. What's the right. great idea going to do, Right, right. right. Anything more on that? No, I think that's, that's if those are seem like simple questions to answer, but you'd be surprised how many people can't answer those questions in a really compelling oh, way. Oh, <laughs> I totally know that they're not simple questions, uh, Heather, and I do know that many people can't uh, resolve those questions. You know, look over the years, the 10 years here I've been doing these podcasts, um, many people, when they write a book, uh, don't answer that question up front. And I think, as you said, it's a mistake. Um, you can write to write, but can you write to help people? Um, I think it's, it's, it's a lot of hope, help, and commiseration. And I think when you write a book, 
from hope, help, and commiseration, you really hit the nail on the head because people want to know also that it's that you're real, that you've had these problems, that you have the experience if you're coming off as the expert in that field. So um, I just believe that the, those two questions that you just gave our listening audience um, is what is the problem and who are you solving it for? Um, those would be the first questions you ask. Well, Heather, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and sharing a few minutes with me about this book, which is bought for my listeners. It's a, it's a compilation. It is out on Amazon. I will tell you, it's not the normal price of a normal book, but it's definitely worth the, the investment. Um, I don't know exactly what the price is on Amazon, but do you, Heather? It's, um, it's a little bit it's more like, than the norm. Yeah, I think if they had it, they had it slated to be sort of a textbook that would be um, adopted and, and taught. So I think it's it's a little more than a regular book. I think it might be fifty bucks as opposed to like thirty bucks or, six, right. or forty right. bucks. Yeah, something in that ballpark. Well, for my listeners, uh, Heather, I'm going to send them to Heather. McGowan, and that's H-E-A-T-H-E-R-M-C-G-O-W-A-N.net. There you are going to find um, publications, blogs, news, uh, more information about Heather. Um, anything, anywhere else you'd like to send them um, where they might get some more information about you and or the others who wrote the book? Sure. Um, the, 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 the next book I'm working on is, is around the future work and the future of learning and that website I already have some information on. It's called futureislearning.com. Future is learning. So they could, okay. All right. So you can also, we'll put a link to that as well, uh, Heather, for them. Future is learning. And I totally agree with you on that. If you're not a continual learner, if you're not on the learning line versus the goal line, you're not here to learn, um, you're going to have a very challenging time as we emerge and evolve um, as a society and the consciousness of the globe as people evolve, that's going to be very challenging if you're not a continual learner. So I totally embrace that concept. Um, I would put a little laugh mark in at this point. I hope that our new president does. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, we'll see how that all goes. Um, Heather, thanks so much for being on Inside Personal Growth. Thank you very much. 